This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guests on Off the Shelf are Ken Dodds. Ken is a government contracting industry expert at Live Live Oak Bank. And David Black, who is a partner in government contracts practice at Holland and Knight. And guys, welcome to the show. Thank Great you. to be here. Thank you very well, much. I'm looking, looking forward to the conversation. You guys are a couple of the go-to guys in terms of small business contracting in the federal government, and that's going to be our topic for today. Um, and but first, you know, since you are go-to guys, can you provide a little bit of your background and? Um, how you got in this this sort of small business contracting world, Ken? Yeah, I joined Live Oak Bank a year ago. It's a investment bank, publicly traded, that focuses on small business government contractors. So we do mobilization loans, lines of credit, and we're the number one SBA lender in the country. So we have a group of people that focus on small business. Prior to that, I worked at the SBA for over twenty years. Thirteen of those as a government contractor uh, attorney. And then it became the SES in charge of government contracting policy, where we worked on a lot of the rules around government contracting and small business. Yeah, Ken, we we, we did a few things together. We did. We had some many, many conversations when I was at When you were uh, running the schedules program, uh, right? I didn't run it. uh, (laughs) It seemed like uh, it. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, uh, David? I'm co-chair of the government contracts practice at uh, Holland and Knight, uh, where I've been for there a little over 20 years. And uh, my practice uh, is sort of being, serving as a trusted advisor for emerging government contractors. Uh, a lot of them are small businesses, small technology companies, and I help them navigate the procurement process, performing contracts, and a lot of you know strategic formation to go after opportunities, mentor protege, joint ventures. Uh, so we're constantly navigating the small business space. And well, um, so let's turn to, to the to the small business space and the topic of the day and. Just to, you know, to to start the conversation, it's just a big picture: the state of uh, small business contracting in the federal government. Uh, where are we right now? Well, I'll take the first stab at that. I think the small business contracting is very strong. It's it's an active space. Um, the agencies the last couple of years have met the twenty three percent goal, twenty three percent of procurement spending going to uh, small businesses. Um, contracting officers are aware of the requirements, the rule of two for contracts, the discretion they have at the task order level. There's a lot of agencies that have basically taken certain programs and set them aside many years ago, and they continue to set aside the follow-on. You know, so it's it's really a mature uh, part of the the contracting process, and and there's a you know vigorous marketplace, and companies can see what uh, agencies are spending and where, and sort of plan plan their strategies accordingly. So it's it's a, a very interesting space. Yeah, I think we're, um, on the one hand, it's been very strong as government spending has increased. We've met, the SBA has met the goal, the government's met the goal of 23% now, I think almost six years in a row, I believe. They did about 25% and $120 billion last year with small business overall. Now, they do miss some of those other categories. Uh, they have not met the uh, 
They've only met the women-owned small business goal once as a government. The hub zone, I don't think they've ever met the hub zone goal. But so, okay, it, just on the hub zone, is, that, is part of that just the – there's a limitation there, right? It's geographic, right? Is that part, one of the challenges for the, for the hub zones is that, you know, certain areas of the country, um, you know, based on economics and – that it's just structurally hard to, yeah. to meet. Is that fair? It's It's been a tough program since the very beginning. The, the rules were kind of drafted very strictly. And so over the years, SBA took uh, um, opportunities to kind of change the rules to make it a little less burdensome. For example, you had to supply the product of a hub zone small business if it was a supply contract. Sure. So they, they we changed that to allow you to supply the product of a small business or even get a waiver, things like that. And then more recently – you know, the big problem was that you'd be in a hub zone today and then next year you're not. So you've just built a building or you just signed a 10-year lease. Okay. What are you supposed to do? Right. Or your employee used to live in a hub zone and now it's not a hub zone any, anymore. What are you going to do? Fire the person? You know, so there's a lot of compliance problems with it. SBA, to their credit, uh, did propose a rule and finalize it to make some changes to the program to, to strengthen it and make it more uh, easy to comply. Because the goal is – to help these underutilized zones, right? Yep. To to spur employment and investment in these uh, underutilized business zones, right? So I and I interrupted you. I had some other thoughts there. You mentioned women-owned small businesses. That, that's they, they. I think they met it once, but that, that's one that they've struggled to do. If you look at the numbers, um, there's very few actual women-owned small business set-asides because if you award to a small business that happens to be a woman-owned small business, you get credit for both. So if you look at uh, whether agencies are really using the program, I don't think that they are. They're not. They're they're tending to do more service-disabled veteran or 8A or just small work than women-owned set-asides. Right. Is women-owned, David, is that sort of a, I mean, a relatively new category as well? Is that yeah, part been, of part of the change? speed in maybe the last uh, decade or, or so. Right. Um, and it's limited to certain NAICS codes where there's been a finding that, that women-owned businesses have been at, at a real disadvantage. So it's it's not as uniform. It doesn't apply to as many categories of spending as some of the other small business programs. Right. So that's probably part of the challenge? or, or Yeah, and, and there were some – There were at some point you couldn't do it above a certain value. It was confusing you know, to contracting officers. They did fix that. Um, there is there was a law I think maybe five years ago that said uh, they're supposed to be certified. So yeah. SBA did propose a rule. They're going to maybe finalize one this year where you'll actually have to be certified as a woman owned as a woman owned. And yeah. so that who does that? Whether SBA does it, whether third parties do it, whether they rely on DBE certification, those are all things that SBA is working on right now. Um, and then. You know, once that's in place, the thought is maybe that'll give contracting officers more confidence to use the program. Right. Hopefully. Yes, it was almost a good, good housekeeping seal of approval, right? Right, like being CVE certified for veterans. Yeah. So big, big picture. You know, David, some of the what, what you, your clients what are seeing as you know big picture sort of challenges. Well, um, one of the space. things is uh, that we have a very active regulator in the small business space. Uh, the SBA, uh, I think in the last three months, has issued three or four either final rules or proposed rules that are pretty groundbreaking. And it seems each year – and some of this are reforms pushed by Congress down to SBA. But um, it's an area where SBA is always implementing change, um, trying to tweak and hopefully expand opportunities for small businesses. But small business contractors need to be on their toes. Like the hub zone rules, that was a major reform. I think it was the um, – 
Yep. You know, the first comprehensive update of the regs in, in maybe 20 years or so, um, and it's it's going to change things for hub zones. And then we, we have things like the, the Small Business Runway Extension um, Act, which finally got put into regulations, went into effect on January 6th. So what is that, David? That uh, is going to uh, change the way service uh, companies – uh, determine their size by making what used to be a three-year trailing average of revenue to determine whether they're under a certain revenue standard to a five-year average. And in most cases, that's going to allow a, a company an extra year or so of eligibility because year four and year five are, are usually lower revenue. Right. The and, first year is coming out of the box, right? right that's right. 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 And so we, we last year there was a lot of uncertainty whether this this law was in effect, but the regulations are on the books uh, SBA really pushed that one through more more quickly than some of the other areas, and and that's an important change for size eligibility. Well, and that's we'll start seeing the impact of that over the next year or so. Yeah, it it was effective I think January sixth, and yeah. so from that date forward, when you uh, certify the government for recertification or going after a bid, you can right. use that five year. And they also did the uh, a grandfathering thing where if three years is better for you you can actually still use three years for the next two years so that it doesn't harm you if you really did great four or five years ago and not so great. You know, right. most, sure. fir- most firms are going to benefit f- from this because they're usually hopefully going up. Right. But some firms were going to be harmed by it. So there is that protection there too for right. those businesses. And, you know, another area that's, that's hot um, that doesn't get enough attention is, is small business subcontracting. Um, SBA has put a lot more teeth into the requirements for small business subcontracting plans. There's uh, potential liquidated damages. There's a new set of regs that that sets what's going to be a material breach of a prime contract if you don't comply with your plan or report your data. And that is getting the attention of – where a small business subcontracting plan was just sort of a, a box to check for the compliance department. It's pushing it to the procurement department. They really have to integrate uh, the processes in the plan into their procurement of subcontracts. And that's that's another area for small businesses to look and market themselves and make sure they're on you know vendor lists, not just with the agencies, but at, at the prime contractor level. Yeah, that's a good point because I think every year in the NDAA, there's usually one, one section on small business subcontracting. It seems that yes. every year yeah. the small businesses go to Congress and say, this is, I'm not being paid on time. They're using me in the bid and not using me. There's all the, there's all those, uh, things that they tell the Hill, and I think it's easier sometimes for them to change those subcontracting laws than to maybe do some major programs. So there seems like there's tweaks every year in the NDAAs as they come out. Right. Well, guys, we're up on the first break. And when I come back, I have a couple more questions on the subcontracting issue, and then maybe we'll turn to some of these you know programs like category management, best in class, and get your thoughts on what they mean for small business. My guests today are Ken Dodds. He's an industry expert at Live Oak Bank. And David Black, he's a partner in in the government contracts practice at Holland Knight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Black. He's a partner at Holland Knight focusing on government contracts. And Ken Dodds, who is a contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. We're talking... Uh, all things small business, uh, this show. And, uh, guys, when we took the break, um, uh, David, you were talking about small business subcontracting plans and some recent changes um, to try to, I guess, you know, put more teeth in subcontracting follow-through by primes um, in their proposals. And 
and uh, translating into actual contract performance. Um, I think one of the overarching things that putting the teeth in there, so how, you know, and I, I just opened this up for you guys in terms of how that plays in assessing the performance of agencies in supporting small businesses and the government as a whole, where does subcontracting plan goals and actual performance play? Yeah, it's part of uh, SBA scorecard. SBA every year does a grading scale where they give the government a grade on how they did with small business contracting, and they also give each agency their own individual score. And part of that, you know, the biggest part of that grade is prime contracting because that's what people think about 23%. That's when they think about small business contracting. But part of the grade is also subcontracting. So SBA does negotiate with each agency a goal and, you know, grades them, and that's part of their grade. And they, they actually increased the importance of it on the scorecard. I think it was at 10% of the grade at one point, and now it's up to 20%, I believe. So they do make it more important in terms of small business. And then they also – part of that is also all the categories, SDB, sure, Homestone, yeah. women-owned as well. And so when you have a requirement to collect data at the agency level, they're going to make sure they get that data by flowing it down to the prime contractors. Mm-hmm. And so – Annually, prime contractors have to report their small business subcontract spend in this uh, electronic system, ESRS. And so the agencies have an incentive to track it. You know, it's a contract requirement. And there's lately I've, I've seen increased enforcement, increased attention on these reports. Uh, I've had uh, clients you know, get questions about, you know, you didn't meet your goals this year. What's, what happened? Why, why didn't you? Um, you know, sometimes you need to revise your plan to, right. to have more realistic uh, goals because they really care about meeting your goals. And so you're seeing, um, con- you know, administrative uh, attention on that level. And then uh, DCMA audits, um, uh, defense contractors uh, about the pro- uh, policies and procedures and processes they have in place to administer and perform their small business subcontracting plan. That could be a separate audit. Right. So are there requirements now to in terms of your you know your proposal, you're a prime large business and you've got a subcontracting plan, to the extent you identify specific small businesses that were gonna part of your team that are gonna perform certain functions as part of the overall solution, you identify those in your proposal, you're kinda wedded to that in terms of assessing, you know, yeah, you're in, in reporting subcontracting. Did you actually use that? particular company? Is there, how does that, is that part of this now? Yeah. I mean, I think there was, as we mentioned earlier, there are laws on every year, there seems to be a new NDA provision on subcontracting. And one of them did address using a a firm, uh, if you put them in your bid, using them in performance, it's a requirement now to tell the contracting officer, if you end up not using them, give them an explanation. The contracting officer is supposed to consider that in giving you your past performance rating as a large prime. And so we have seen in some bid protests where your subcontracting performance actually was the difference between winning and losing a a contract. And GAO usually says it was in the solicitation. You didn't address it or you had bad performance. You're going to lose on that particular issue. You know, every year you see a couple of those. So there's individual subcontracting plans. But then there are a lot of contractors that sell COTS items or, or resell uh, COTS items. And, um, and, and they're uh, required to have a, what's called a commercial small business subcontracting plan. And that's not about subcontracting to fill any particular order or contract. SBA says that's hard for you to do because you have a plant or you're reselling COTS items. We're going to have an a, a enterprise-wide subcontracting plan 
Um, so it's much more comprehensive and broader. It applies not just to your federal purchases, but we want you to track small business spend to support your commercial non-government uh, purchases. It's an enterprise-wide purchasing plan. and wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of times there are – you know, non-traditional, COTS, uh, non-traditional government contractors who are COTS companies where, where their small business subcontracting exceeds their federal business, you know, two or three times. Um, and so big requirement for them. Uh, they're going to, you know, they're learning that, that, that these audits and the penalties, the, the, you know, the, the contract risk, uh, they have to take it seriously. And then that's where small businesses can go to them and say, get us on your list. We know, you know, you need to buy this kind of thing to support your your manufacturing facility or your, you know, this is, this is stuff you need for right. your products and it's, get us on your list so you can hit your goals. Right. right. I imagine that's a big education for those sort of not a tr- traditional commercial companies coming yes. in and, how, you know, they're partnering with small businesses. It's like the, right? the tail that wags the dog. Yeah. You know, a lot of times uh, people are like, we signed up for what? Right. But, but they, they uh, ultimately the federal business is important to them so they have to integrate it into their uh, procurement department. Does it does have in your experience have you seen it sort of your ripple effect that it becomes sort of a a mindset you know on the commercial side too that to, to yeah to some more for the for the COTS business. companies it really has to yeah uh, you know so they they go through the growing pains and the learning curve is steep you know they get you know they don't hit their goals they get questions they get audited and that gives internally. You know the the contracting people the leverage to talk to the commercial people and say we have to work together on this yeah. and really uh, integrate this you know identifying small business opportunities into our purchasing so they mature over time. Yeah. So now let's turn to that's enough small business subcontracting I think guys. <laughs> so uh, the next up topic I want to sort of talk about is. The impact of category management or just what, what you're seeing around small business vis-a-vis category management and also part of category management is best-in-class contracts. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think um, you know this was kind of started many years ago. We've, we had strategic sourcing before they changed it to category management, and there are some differences there. But it really did start to drive uh, – I think it's been the biggest issue in small business government contracting over the last few years because – a lot of a lot of companies were not aware that it was coming, so they'd be performing a contract, a standalone contract, sure. and lo and behold, when it comes out, it's under Oasis, and you never heard of Oasis as as the contractor. And, and when Oasis was first established, for example, it wasn't really meant to be a, a, to take the whole market, right? It was supposed to focus on a certain segment of the market. But certain agencies come up with policies where they say. We're going to do. Uh, we're going to use these strategic sourcing vehicles. Yeah, pre- for pre-existing this, for these kind of things, and that's the policy, and it flows down. And as a small business, if you're not on that, obviously you have to scramble and try to be a subcontractor, try to team. Now they did, you know, the, to their credit, they have started to do on ramps. Yeah, so they have started to open it up so that, and they really needed to because the firms that were on those contracts made were, so much were, money, yeah, they were yeah. no longer small anymore. Right. David, any thoughts yeah, on the sure. best so, in class? So, yeah, category management is really about the migration to government-wide, uh, you know, pur- purchasing vehicles. Um, and the best in class being sort of this top tier. There's a second tier government-wide. And so, you know, with, with small businesses, you have to know your customer and you have to know your product and how they're, they're purchasing it. And category management has been around for several years now, and I think people are finally getting it. And planning ahead and making sure you know they are in position to to capture business the way they're they're 
their customer is is buying it. Now, the nice thing is OMB is, has emphasized all along, you know, we, we want agencies to audit the way they buy and try to move to, the, to these best-in-class vehicles, uh, which have certain – meet certain criteria that, you know, collect data and define requirements. Um, they're, they're asking agencies to do an annual process and review and plan. And side-by-side, side, OMB has always said, and don't forget your small business obligations, your small business responsibilities to hit the goals, hit the targets. And so that uh, – for, for example, whenever a new uh, best-in-class uh, vehicle gets submitted to the council for, for review and approval – as part of that process, the agency is required to collaborate with SBA about designing the BIC to encourage small business participation. And so, you know, I think for small businesses, it's it's about understanding how the vehicles are shifting, um, but the opportunities sh- are, should be the same or even increasing um, because the planning process requires consideration of small business. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, you know, you can definitely meet the small business goals using these best-in-class contracts because they do set up small, you know, either pools or separate contracts depending on how the agency does it. Obviously, there's also been studies showing that the number of contractors being awarded contracts is shrinking by a lot because instead of it open to everybody, it's only open to a few. So we are overall spending money with small businesses, but it's a fewer small businesses. are. Yeah, it was, it's, it was at one point it was open to all in terms of the first competition, right? But right. then it's an ongoing – if it's a five, ten-year contract, there's a pool of people who got awarded it. And to your point about on-ramps, uh, Ken, that that's something that's you see more and more. You know, agencies doing or GSA in particular doing on-ramps to try to increase the pool. So, and that's been challenging too because we've seen for some of those it's taken two or three years. For example, Alliance uh, to small business that w- was awarded and then not litigation, and now they are going to open it up, but they haven't even opened it up yet. So it's been years for that. I think CIOSP3 also took several several years to finally get awarded. I will tell you one thing. Yeah, it's not just uh, the you know um, small businesses waking up and seeing their their contract went is and migrated to a best in class. That happens to large businesses too. So it's David, your point about knowing the market, understanding your customer, and what they're thinking about where they're going to go next is, I mean, that's critical to the that's foundational, right? So. Um, you know what? We're already up at the next break, but when we come back, um, you know, one one of the things I wanted to talk about before we move on to the sort of some market factors is real quickly talk about uh, task orders and setting side orders and that process to give people a flavor for that, and then we can turn to you know the market in mid tiers and what's going on there, and then do some mergers and acquisition kind of stuff too. So. Okay, guys. Sounds good. Segment. Great. So, my guests today are are Ken Dodds. He is a government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank, and David Black. He is the head of the contracts practice at Holland and Knight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Black. He's the head of government contracts practice at Holland and Knight. And Ken Dodds, former SBA executive, I had many run-ins. Attorney, you, yes. Ken, yes. Ken not you know, pleasant run-ins, we right? worked together. Enjoyed working together. Yeah. Um, who is now an industry expert at Live Oak Bank, focusing on small business opportunities and issues. And guys, um, this segment, let's start out, let's do a little bit more procurement stuff, and then we can talk about the market for mid-tiers and mergers and stuff. And really, you know, first off, 
got a couple areas I wanted to explore. One is TAA and the non-manufacturer waiver. But first, just can you run through on multiple board contracts, which you know we talked about BIC and category management and these big contracts, which seem to be the flavor of the day, right? There's a lot of focus on moving to those. How do the set-aside rules work at the task order level? Can you give me a 101 on that? Yeah, I'll take a shot first, and then David can add his his uh, input. Um, you know, this goes back to FASA, right, the 1994 law, I think, that, that set up multiple board contracting. And not surprisingly, after that, agencies started to set aside orders for small business, but there weren't really rules around how they were supposed to do it. And there was a lot of disagreement between SBA and maybe GSA and others about whether the rule of two did apply at the order sure, level. Yeah, there, I remember a lot that. of back yeah. and forth on that. So finally, finally, Congress kind of stepped in in the Jobs Act, I think, of 2010, where they said, you may in your discretion set aside orders. And so that kind of um, explained whether, you know, how agencies are going to do that is that they have the discretion to do it. You know, we at SBA always argued that at least below the simplified acquisition threshold, the rule of two should apply because it's statutory and it should apply to orders. Um, uh, GEO didn't necessarily agree with that view. So now I think we have this um, this discretion to do it, but a lot of times agencies go farther than that and they say that we're going to do it up front. For example, we want you to make a decision before you use these BICs. Yes. Should it go small or not? And then you can use the small pool with the small contract. Others write into the solicitation certain orders will be set aside. Sometimes, you know, they, they reserve the discretion to do it if they want to. So there's a lot. You really have to read each solicitation to know what the rules are. For example, T4NG says we're going to go SDVO first if there are SDBOs that can perform the work. Right. So, And, David, so there, there used to be um, a bifurcation, right, in the rules that apply. Schedules had sort of, I think, more discretion. And then there were bid protests that sort of said you've got to apply the rule of two for other multiple board contracts consistent with FASA that were authorized by FASA, like think Alliant or Alliant, those type of con GWACs or other multiple board contracts created just generally. But that's kind of changed. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. And, th- and this was this uh, Jobs Act of 2010 where uh, Congress kind of stepped in and resolved uh, sort of overruled GAO in a sense and said uh, for, for task order contracts, we want agencies to have discretion. And, so, you know, so what this has done is sort of a – there's, there's a, uh, an upside and a downside to this, especially when you uh, layer in category management and spe- um, common spending categories get pushed to IDIQ contracts. On the one hand, small businesses lose the rule of two at the task order level. It's discretionary. Um, on the upside, they make their size certification at the time they submit their proposal for the IDIQ contract. And some of these are, are long-term contracts and um, where they don't have to recertify for five years. And so there can be and, – and unless the contract provides otherwise or the, or the contracting officer requires a certification for a task order, which is rare – um, they are eligible to compete for task orders um, for the life of that ordering period, even if they've grown to be other than large. So whereas before, if a, if an agency was going contract, 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 it's you know year three, if they grew to be other than small, they'd lose their eligibility. Under the multiple award IDIQ, they can be eligible for five years uh, because size is determined when they submitted their proposal for the IDIQ contract. Uh, now, Ken alluded to there can be you know, know your contract. There can be specific rules that agencies have baked into some of these. But that's the default rule. 
um, that size is determined when you submit your proposal for the IDIQ contract and you stay small. Right. Do you, so you then, but you do re- but agencies can require certif- research, a certification for individual orders? They can. They, they have that discretion. When SBA was drafting the rule, that was something that some agencies wanted. Yeah. Uh, the other issue that we're seeing now that SBA is trying to address through rulemaking is, for example, this, the contract IDIQ is set aside for small business, but now yeah. an agency wants to do a hub zone set aside under that. And so okay. w- what are the rules that apply to that? Or let's say it's a service-disabled veteran-owned set aside, but the company was sold to a non-service-disabled veteran. Uh, during that performance. So is that company eligible for that order that's being set aside for veterans when they initially were at veteran when they got the contract, but now they're not? So I think SBA is trying to, they propose rules and they're working on final rules to kind of address that situation. But at the option period, company in these contracts, they do have to recertify. Is that right? If it's a long-term contract where the um, contract ordering periods are five years or, or more. Um, but for when the option periods are just year to year to year, there is no recertification requirement. Yeah, and that, that was consistent, I think, with your your general contract was one year with four one-year options. And I think people were comfortable saying we should give everyone um, comfort that if you submit your offer and you're small, you should be able to get the award. You should – if the government takes a year to award it and you've grown to be large, we're not going to take it away and yeah. not, not mm-hmm. award it. So that made sense. When the schedules went to evergreen or never-ending sure. – and let's say Lockheed. Not ever, evergreen. That's 20 years, yeah. <laughs> and someone bought that company and the company or the company was small 10 years ago. It didn't make sense to say you're small because you got that scheduled contract 10 years ago. So that's why we they came up with the five-year. That made sense. And, of course, they do require it, though, if there's a merger, acquisition, or innovation as well. Yeah, but, you know, there's a, there's sort of a misunderstanding of what the effect of that is. So when you, when you buy or sell, you have to recertify your size to, to the contracting officers. And what that – the impact of that is it affects the credit the agency can take. They can't take credit for your small business contract anymore. Um, right. But you're still eligible to finish out the contract um, unless the contract provides for some off-ramp. Um, you're eligible for small business orders set aside even though you've recertified as large. It affects the credit the agency. They can't get credit, but you're eligible. Um, and then same, you could, they can still exercise options if, if they want. Right. They, don't, they have discretion on that. But it's not a death sentence, and it's not the end of, of the contract when you recertify as other, other than yeah, small. Yeah, and certainly by the rules, it gives you the discretion as an agency. You can not exercise the option if you want, or you can let them continue. Now, contractors do have to be careful because a lot of these contracts have different things written into them about up-ramping, off-ramping, yeah. side-ramping. So each one is different. So sometimes you'll find what that you can just go to the unrestricted portion, others – they're written in a way that you're not going to be on the contract. So each one has to be read in, in its entirety to figure that right, out. Right. That's an age-old adage, you know, read the contract. Yes. Know it's what in writing. the contract says, right? So um, real quickly, geez, thinking of, um, you know, on the TAA, there's an interesting case that just, just decided about waiver and the non-manufacturer rule that basically said, um, you know, small business set-asides, the TAA doesn't apply. And I get that for contracts where you're providing the product of a small business because actually that's more restrictive than the TAA. So, of course, a TAA isn't going to apply. And it's something that was carved out by, you know, the WTO Agreement on Government Procurement. On procurement. Um, that's more restrictive. But that blanket language also means it doesn't apply to where you are have a waiver and non-manufacturer rule and the dealer's providing the product of an other than small, Right. And what that means is the Buy American Act applies, 
And under that, you can provide as much Chinese stuff after a price differential evaluation as you want. Does that well, Ken, that's, that's something. Yeah, that. that's a really good point. Yeah, it comes up in supply contracts. The government policy, of course, is we want small businesses to perform work. We want them to manufacture things here. That's great. However, Congress recognized that there are situations where things just aren't made here, especially by small business. Right. And that's where you can get the waiver. So once SBA has made a determination and given an agency a waiver saying there are no small manufacturers, at that point, no one really decided what the rule should be. The way it's written in the FAR, it, it's, it's, the mindset is that this is just for things made by small business. And yeah. so I think it needs to go a step further and say, except if SBA has issued a waiver. Right, and waiver. then the question is, do we want the Buy American Act to apply, which was it's counterintuitive but allows you to sell Chinese products, or should the TAA apply, which – you have Prohibit to have, yeah. yeah. You have to either be U.S. or Trade Agreement Act type companies, which would not allow Chinese products. It's counterintuitive if you right. don't know the the, uh, the process and the rules as they apply. Do you think the SBA is going to try to address that? I think they will. I think it's been brought to their attention. It's been it's not a new thing. It, we've no, kind of known about the problem, but I think that case. Um, yeah. I think there are some Puts upset a, yeah. upset people about that decision. Yeah. yeah. So good stuff. Um, so we got about a minute left, and um, let's just try start introducing. Uh, we finally get into the mid-tiers and mergers and acquisition. And just just a real quick statement on the mid-tier issue that we hear about of, um, you know, the challenges companies who are have grad, just graduated from being a small business or in the mid-tier market, and they're not huge companies that, you know, have a breadth of, of – resources and capabilities to address uh, an evaluation criteria that reflects that versus mid-tier versus small business set-asides? And just thoughts sure. on the so challenges? This, I mean, this is where uh, small businesses get to be the victims of their own success. Uh, they've, they've grown up uh, providing you know, certain services and to certain programs. They've collected set-aside contracts. They've grown their revenue, and they hit that point where they size out. And so their follow-on contracts come up for bid. And they're no longer eligible for those. So, so if, if they don't do something, they're going to lose revenue because they can't be a prime anymore. Um, so you can't compete for the set-aside. Go compete for the full and open. And they're at a real competitive disadvantage to compete as a prime. And, and it sort of uh, drives them out of the prime market into a subcontracting position. And it's, it's a challenge. And we can, I know we'll be talking about this. Yes. So thanks, David. When we, when we come back, we'll continue that discussion talk about mergers and acquisitions, and then at the uh, end of the next segment, which is the end of the show, maybe just a quick thought on what you see emerging issues for small businesses. My guests today are Ken Dodds. He is an industry expert at Live Oak Bank, and David Black. He is a partner at Holland and Knight, focusing on government contracts. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are David Black. He is a partner at Holland and Knight, uh, leading the government's contracts practice. And Ken Dodds, he is a government contracting industry expert at Live Oak Bank. And we're talking all things small business this show. Uh, lots of good information, lots of great stuff in the first three segments. And this segment, um, you know, we started talking about mid-tiers and sort of the challenges, the, the quandary you know, they face um, just other thoughts about what you see going on in the market with regard to mid-tiers? Sure. Uh, so, 
you know, it comes down to what, how do you deal with this? What's the strategy? I mean, the the assumption, my working assumption is there's, there's not going to be any regulatory change to create a mid-tier program. I, there's, I, I see a lot of just uh, difficulty with that to balkanize federal spending that way. Um, there's, there's regulatory relief, things like the Extension Act, but ultimately businesses have to decide how do you respond. And this is where you, you, you need to have uh, business development planning that's very nuanced. And whereas you know, maybe before it was sort of you know zero sum games, you know let's let's be the prime on this program and, and and maybe two or three programs, you're shifting to a subcontracting strategy, where you first you want to capture and maintain as much share of the relationships you've built um, by looking at mentor protege and getting into a joint venture with a protege small business that can kind of step into your shoes as uh, well the joint venture would be the new prime and you can do up to sixty percent of your old work. And so, you know, where, where do we have great past performance? Where is that going to be an advantage to a JV so we can go from 100 percent down to 60 percent instead of 49 percent or less? Right. And that's yeah. one strategy. The other one is do you have niches that are valuable to larger primes? And, and where do you fit in on their teams and getting on teaming agreements? It could be the same agencies. It could be key personnel. It could be you know, special things that you do, the, a puzzle piece yes. um, where you can get some good, healthy subcontracts. And so you start it's, uh, patching together a quilt. Um, and then this is where you know, maybe some of this um, move to, to IDIQ contracts, BICs, um, where you know, getting those vehicles there's, there, there is not as competitive. It's not a zero-sum game. You know, getting one of those vehicles and then looking for prime task orders that aren't behemoth programs. Um, they're too big to be set-asides, but maybe there are basically prime task order opportunities that you are the right size for and you, you are on the large business uh, – Side of the contract. Yeah, yeah to yeah, compete for yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, years ago we did see some legislation around maybe doing a mid-tier program. Other countries do have mid-tier kind of strategies. Really? And yeah. so – you know, but right now if you're an IT company, once you go to $31 million in average annual revenue – you're a large business now. There is no, there's right. no, you're, you're, yeah. it's it's black or white. You're either large or you're small. So yeah, we're seeing companies that are doing what David talked about. Um, you know, strategies around joint ventures, subcontracting, teaming. Um, you know, you have to have a strategy for what's going to happen. Others are uh, deciding that they don't want to try to compete in unrestricted because ultimately, that's even if you do all those things, you're still going to have to compete in unrestricted. So we're seeing companies that want to kind of sell off assets. Uh, they have these valuable best-in-class contracts, and, there are, and that can be done. You know, you can't sell a contract, but you can sell a division or assets. Yes. Remember yes. that? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Exactly. There's <laughs> lots of clever lawyers that can help you do that, but right. there are lots of complicated rules around that too that uh, I'd like to talk about. Uh, sure, go no, ahead. You know, for example, if you buy an entity, you inherit the last five years of revenue of that entity. But if you buy a division or asset, you don't. You know, okay. for another 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 rule is that if you uh, buy an entity, you have to uh, recertify not just on those contracts, but all of your other contracts. If you're no longer small, whereas if you buy a division, or you might you might have to uh, recertify for that Novata contract, but you don't have to do them for all your other contracts. There's a lot of strategies yeah. around mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. So so what? And just in that market, you know. You, You've interest, introduced that thought. Just you know, that's some some of the key things people thing to think about. What's the market like right now for mergers and acquisitions? You guys are in it every day. Sure, it's it's always active. It's always busy. Um, you know, it's 
you you have uh, private equity firms and strategics, other contractors looking to grow, not through organic growth, but through acquisition. And you have companies that are building value, positioning themselves to be bought uh, you know, by someone else. And, and you know, the, the market has sort of been consistently robust. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we're hearing is a lot of firms want to get on those best-in-class contracts. If they couldn't they're, they're compete and get on, they yeah. want to try to either acquire as an asset or an entity that has it. Now, some that also has challenges because we've heard some uh, contracts like Alliant, they won't novate at all. So even if you acquire, they're not going to put you on there. They want to choose their own contractors. So there are challenges when you try to do that as well. Others like Oasis, for example, might say – I don't know how they do that. Well, you know, it's 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 not a right, you know. The government has no, but actually, yeah, they have a discretion. But mm-hmm. you know, in a certain sense, like you're not good enough to do business with us. Yeah, and that's what you I was get into a, like a de facto department. What do you right? Doing? And that's what some of the agencies are starting to say is that okay, you want to you want to be on this. You still have to meet the points that oh, to get yeah. on Oasis, you had to have these points. So now you have to show us you have these points. And I think they're doing that also when they're up ramping. So if you go from Oasis small to Oasis unrestricted, I think you might have to meet that point total that, that you had to meet to get on unrestricted. So I have to ask, okay, you've made me think of something. So if there's a contract vehicle where somebody buys a company that's on it, the assets and performance, and they say, well, you have to have the points. Well, they just bought the asset that had the points that got them the award. How can, what are they saying? That separately you have to demonstrate the points? Is that what you're hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's something else. Um, so, I, mentor protege. I know there's like rules out. Um, I think the you know comments were due last week, uh, February seventh or something on rules. Just a quick snapshot on what that's all about. Sure. The, the big uh, proposal is to consolidate the two mentor protege programs, the eight A program with the all small program, into a single. And they basically would move the eight A program over to the all small program, uh, which which has certain efficiencies uh, in terms of how they operate that, that I think are advantageous. And it's probably a non non controversial change. Yeah, and I think what you're seeing is a lot of a lot of uh, mentors that can be a large business. They want to get a protege so that they can go after these best in class small business contracts. Sure. They can joint venture together yeah. and be considered small or eight A or whatever for these best in class contracts like eight A stars or CIOS before that's coming up. So we're seeing a lot of of teaming joint venturing in that way. And that's good for the prime uh, for the large business, but it's also that's a great opportunity for small business, right? They get the opportunity to get on a contract. Mm-hmm. They get to learn and as a mentor, you know, there's the protege, right, for the, the mentor and, and capability and performing and all that kind of stuff. That's right. the whole purpose of it. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. in exchange for this, um, you know, the, the help that the mentor is going to give you. That's why SBA allows you to joint venture, and it's certainly a strategy that, that these firms are, are pursuing. Yeah. yeah. So we've got like about a minute and a half left or so. So. Just quickly, you know, if you had issues to watch for small businesses in particular, or maybe just in general in the federal space that contractors need to pay close attention to. Sure. A couple thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the big challenge uh, that's confronting small businesses on supply chain and coming down the pike in cybersecurity, although that's technically here as well. It's just going to shift. So okay. so the on cybersecurity, uh, DOD is rolling out this new CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And um, when they get it set up, there's going to be a maturity level for every uh, prime contract that the prime contractor has to obtain a pre-approval, pre-certification by an assessor. 
Right. Uh, you know, you have different levels. That they have in hand. Yeah. 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 And so that um, the, the levels were just published last week. Um, DOD is setting up the accreditation body. The big thing, though, is level three is the, is the NIST standard that's yes. currently in the 7012 DFARS clause. And that's going to be a good default. Like if you're planning ahead, you know, whereas before you've, you've had this clause and you've had to have a plan as a post-award thing, just plan on that being a, a widely used model because it's what DOD is using today. Um, and, you know, there are uh, ways to prepare. There's ways to get pre-assessments and, you know, see, see how you stand up and what adjustments do you have to make so you're ready. Right. The other one is the Chinese uh, telecommunication uh, equipment and, and services, and that's Huawei and ZTE. Yeah, Section 889 people refer to it. Right. That's right. right. That's right. And that went into effect in August in an interim rule that took immediate effect that you, you, the government can't acquire this stuff anymore and it can't con- continue contracts that provide it. So that's re- requiring and that's going to hit certain small businesses harder than others depending on, on how IT heavy and how Huawei heavy they were. But you know, it's a sort of doing an audit of your in, you know, inventorying what, what you're providing to the government, uh, understanding your, your suppliers and subcontractors, what they're using – Figuring out what's 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 not allowed anymore, and kind of cleansing your supply chain and your service offerings of Huawei and ZTE products, because um, in August you can't sell that stuff to the government. Coming later this year, you can't use it, even right. if you're not selling it to the government. So it's it's time to plan ahead and you know make the investment. And um, basically, the the policies DoD has this backdoor of of, of cyber and supply chain threat. It's small businesses. Yes. And they're going to close the door. And so everyone has to plan accordingly. Right. I'm looking okay. forward to the changes to the limitation on subcontracting from the NDA of 2013. SBA did 2013, a, 2013. Huh? 2013. What, what year is it now? Yeah. <laughs> SBA did a rule in 2016. There was a proposed FAR change. but they And that, that's the one that allows you to use similarly situated entities to help you meet the performance requirement. And okay. also changes it from like for services from cost incurred for personnel to a amount paid. And SBA did some rules around that, and then there were some questions about, well, do, do what costs are deducted and so forth. So DOD has done a deviation to the FAR to implement it, but the rest of the government doesn't – the FAR hasn't changed. So there's a lot of confusion, I think, among small businesses out there. What rules apply to my set-aside contract? Right, and, the, but, and that's – you see that expanding – once they fix it, it's, it's the intent was to help. So right. basically, and, and they SBA allowed it in some programs, and it wasn't allowed in others based on the way the laws were written. So the idea is it's going to help small businesses team together. Teaming is mm-hmm. becoming more and more important in government contracting. Right. But the enforcement on that is the big risk because now there's there's set penalties of at least five hundred thousand dollars or the amount you subcontracted above the limit if it's greater. So you're looking at a five hundred thousand dollar penalty. Um, for violating the limitation subcontract clause and the measurement, and they've they've said it, you know, it's it's year by year. It's not the life of the contract. So contractors really need to when they, when that clause is hitting their contracts, um, they need to really focus on compliance to limit risk. And that's one of the big issues: is who's monitoring it? Can we make them report? That's what a lot of the fighting between SBA and the rest of the government is: yeah. how are we going to monitor this? Do we put the burden on the contractors, the burden on the, on the government right. to, to make sure there's compliance? That's an age-old thing, right? Of course. Who's going to carry the burden? So. Yes. Guys, great show. Thank you so much. I want to thank my guest today, Ken Dodds. He's an industry expert on government contracting at Live Oak Bank. And David Black, he's a partner leading government contracts practice at Holland and Knight. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. 
You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.